You're listening to the Warden Alumni Executive Education Podcast. Alex, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, and, uh, you know, I know it may be confusing because I made some changes recently. Uh, I'm a partner at, at Baker Botts, uh, which is a national firm. And uh, it, it's really my pleasure to be here, Alex. Thanks for inviting me. And thanks for everybody that worked with you to set up this uh, podcast for Warden. No, I appreciate it. Yeah. So give me a little bit about background because you were a partner at Wilson's and Sosini, if I pronounce that correct, for about 17 years, or you were over there at 17 years. Then you went to Perkins and you started, I think, uh, a new office for them over in, in Austin and grew that one. And then you you recently here switched again. So it'd be awesome to have a little bit of background and, you know, uh, some of your journey. No, a- absolutely. And, uh, Alex, if I may, let me kind of go a little bit further, you know, behind that time so that everything kind of falls into place. So uh, by education, I'm actually an electrical engineer and uh, I have a electrical engineering uh, bachelor's degree and a master's degree. And I worked in industry for many years before even becoming a lawyer. I worked for uh, six years in the telecommunications business. Uh, which was uh, it was a tremendous learning experience, which we can talk about later. Um, and uh, after six years, I decided to make a move into a, a different area. And I was thinking what I should do uh, because I wanted to work uh, in a situation where I could make more strategic decisions, not just the technical uh, aspects of, of work. And that led me to law school and uh, becoming a lawyer. And my uh, Early on, I decided I was going to focus on intellectual property. Uh, and there are two reasons for that. I love technology. I love what, I, what I've learned in engineering. Uh, but, you know, I wanted to move on to strategic decision making. And kind of the combination of technology and law is the perfect fit for intellectual property. And that's what I've done ever since I became a lawyer. And so... My work has involved counseling and advice for uh, all sorts of technology enterprises, uh, from small startups to medium companies to some of the largest uh, corporations that uh, are out there. And the advice kind of runs a gamut. It, you know, can be anything from small advice to setting up your foundational intellectual property strategy to transactional advice, uh, licensing, um, helping out with deals on the technology side, and also to litigation and some uh, large litigation matters. And um, so with that background, uh, first I started at a uh, boutique, uh, and by boutique, I mean a law firm that worked only on intellectual property. And that firm uh, is no longer in existence, but it was a wonderful firm. It was a firm called Arnold White and Durkee. And they were the largest intellectual property uh, only firm uh, in the country at that point, Uh, probably around 250 lawyers around the country. And um, it started in Houston and it was a a tremendous, uh, tremendous learning opportunity. Some of the best lawyers uh, in the field were there. Um, and I was there for, uh, a few years for three or four years. And after that, um, I moved on to another firm that was 
starting out in Austin. And by the way, that's where I'm at now. Uh, so I started and went to another firm called Brobeck uh, in Austin. And uh, that was back in 2000, long time ago. And, uh, you know, Austin back then was a fairly small town. It was a, a town that uh, had the University of Texas, which was it's always been kind of a beacon beacon for the for the city and had city government, but it was starting to become uh, a technology uh, hub. It was just the, the the beginnings of it, and so uh, Brobeck saw that and uh, opened up here and was doing a tremendous job uh, setting up uh, technology startups and doing all sorts of intellectual property advice, uh, but then. Um, as we all know, the dot-com bubble uh, hit and uh, some entities did better than others. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, the firm I was working for, I mean, I was not a partner at that time. I was still a, a younger lawyer learning. Uh, that, that firm didn't do very well with the, uh, with the dot-com bust. And it closed uh, in 2003. Uh, and it turned out to be a fantastic opportunity because um, the day that Brobeck announced that it was closing, uh, at first I was very nervous and concerned. My my second child had been born two weeks uh, before, and I was wondering what my future would hold. Uh, but by the end of that day, uh, my voicemail was full of inquiries from other law firms uh, and Wilson Sansini uh, had left a, a, a voicemail or had connected with me and I already had an interview set up with them. And within a few days later, I, I went there and Wilson Sansini is a tremendous firm uh, based in Silicon Valley. And uh, I was there for 17 years and uh, learned a lot about working with technology companies from companies from cradle to the largest technology companies. And so that that was a a a tremendous run um but throughout those years austin continued to grow and become the technology hub that it is today and what some folks that are not in the legal field uh, may not know is that in addition to all the business that gets done in the technology area it's it's also a place where there's a significant uh, intellectual property and patent expertise in the judiciary, and that there's a lot of patent litigation and disputes in this area, and that has led to uh, a lot of law firms kind of growing and entering the market. And through that, uh, and because of that, um, Perkins Coie, which was my next move, uh, entered the market, and uh, another tremendous firm. And I. Uh, I was fortunate enough to lead that office uh, for a few years, get it started, and uh, hire lots of really great lawyers to get that uh, firm going. And so, uh, you know, the growth in, in the Austin area has been not just in the business side, but it has been on the legal side. Um, and then just most recently, uh, Baker Botts, which is one of the oldest uh, Texas firms, uh, wanted uh, somebody like me to uh, help lead the um, Austin uh, Patent Litigation and Intellectual Property Group. And uh, I've known some of the folks that uh, work here, some of the partners that have worked in at Baker Botts for 
uh, over 20 years, and I've always admired their capabilities as lawyers uh, in the great service that they provide, and it was an opportunity I really couldn't pass up. And so I've been here since September of 2022, and uh, it's been a wonderful experience, and I'm, I'm hoping to do uh, similar to what I did at other places to uh, grow the business, grow our client base, and make an impact on the community here in Austin and really throughout Texas. So I'm sorry for the long answer, uh, but I wanted to provide some of the background so that it, so that it would make some sense. Oh, for, for sure. So it, it sounded then, if I got that correct, they started in Houston, moved to Austin, then went to Silicon Valley, and then ended up back in Austin, pretty much. Pretty much. Uh, it, it, I actually, I lived throughout that time in Austin, but I did spend tons of time in Silicon Valley. And so it did feel like I was, like I was living there. Um, and, and I still, to this day, many of my uh, good clients are in Silicon Valley. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's uh, Silicon Valley is just uh, the headquarters for so many amazing uh, technology enterprises that if you are working in my area, uh, you're going to have a connection to Silicon Valley more likely than not. Uh, and But I've been really all over the place. I mean, I went to law school at, at Georgetown University in D.C., so I spent some, some time over there. And um, my really my connections and clients and so on, it, it's really a national type uh, practice. But uh, Austin has always been the anchor for where I'm at. And it's, uh, I've kind of grown with, uh, with the area and the city and, and, and matured with it um, to the point where Austin is now a, you know, a nationally recognized uh, technology center. But it, it, Alex, it wasn't like that uh, 10, 15 years ago. It was just a growing technology hub. But now the, uh, you know, kind of the threshold where you kind of mature from an adolescent to an adult we just kind of went through that over the last five years. Interesting. What was it like though for you to, you know, go to Perkins, essentially be founding managing partner of the Austin office, grow that, like that must feel like it's a little bit like your baby. And then there must be a lot that Baker Bots has to offer you. And I know you touched on some of that, to, you know, make the decision that you said you can't pass up. I, I couldn't imagine you know, starting something from scratch, growing it, and then just, you know, um, um, kind of mo- moving forward with with something different. Well, it's it, uh, it it really took a special situation for me to do so. Um, but but you know, Alex, after working for so many years and making so many connections and knowing so many so many folks, you kind of I've kind of reached a point in my career where um, I want to be at a place where you know if if I can make a big difference in something. Um, that's really important to me in, um, my previous firm, Perkins Cooey, they, they're fantastic and I, they're friends forever. And you're right that, uh, it has a special place in my heart and I, uh, wish the, the best for them and the office here. And, and I, you know, I know the folks that, you know, to this day, we, we've exchanged Christmas cards, I have a great relationship with them. But at this point, I think I can make a bigger difference here. And like I said, the uh, BakerBots uh, has been in existence in Texas for over 150 years. It's wow. just a, it's a, it's a mainstay of, uh, of of the legal market here, and so it's it's a fantastic place to to practice and uh, 
and in intellectual property, uh, this is it's a great location, and uh, it's always been known as a fantastic intellectual property firm. So I feel I can make a big difference here, and that that's why I'm here. For sure. So in intellectual property, I can only imagine you know, some of the biggest companies in the world that are publicly traded are essentially IP companies. You know, when I think Amazon, Facebook, Uber, Snapchat, things like that. Um, are you able to talk about some of the the IP where and you know what would make an impact? I I don't know much about you know what type of IP. Yeah. So of IP course. So broad. Yeah. So let so just in general, uh, you're right. I mean, a lot of the largest firms now they really their crown jewels are all intellectual property, right? Uh, that that's where lots of the investment is. And um, all of those companies have have intellectual property, uh, intellectual property issues. And but even even the, the not not just the big ones, the small ones too. They're being started and founded. Um, the the bedrock is their intellectual property. So uh, I mean, if I start with with the smaller companies, right? The smaller companies, they just need to they need to figure out how they're going to protect their intellectual property. What's going to be their strategy in Really, uh, there's many ways to do it. There's, uh, are you going to obtain patents? Are you going to have copyrights? Are you going to do trademarks? Uh, is the IP going to be protected by trade secrets? And so, um, at an early stage, it's important to define that strategy to see what what makes uh, the most sense. Um, and by the way, I have to give a disclaimer that you know. I'm not giving any uh, legal advice because I don't, you know, I, I would need to know all the information and have an engagement letter. This is just informational purposes for people to know. But for example, uh, you may want to consider a, a patent uh, if the technology that you have is kind of limited in duration, the, the value of it is limited in duration. Because when you get a patent, basically, you have approximately 20 years of exclusivity where only you can do a certain thing that you claim in the patent, but it's going to be disclosed to the public. Everybody's going to know about it. Uh, that's the purpose of the patent. So quid pro quo, the government gives you exclusivity for a certain technology or you know, some sort of method. It just has to be uh, something new and not obvious. Uh, but in exchange, you're going to publish that information to the world. So at some point when that patent expires, that knowledge base is out there. That's a patent. But for example, if you have technology that's going to be, that you can keep it under covers and your customers are only going to see kind of the results and you can keep it confidential for many, many, many years, more than 20 years, then you may want to consider a trade secret because a trade secret is information that you don't disclose, but that there's federal and state law that protects it if somebody steals it. Um, but you're not disclosing it to the world. And kind of like the easy example that people talk about is the formula for Coca-Cola, right? That we don't know what it is, uh, but we all know it tastes good. And uh, we know it's really valuable and that Coke keeps it very secret. So that's a trade secret. And so they don't want to disclose it. They, It's been something that's been uh, secret for more than 20 years. And it's going to be secret for another more than 20 years. So that's another type of uh, protection. <clears throat> or are you going to use copyrights? So there's all sorts of things that decisions that have to be made at an early stage so that you don't make a mistake and uh, 
protect the IP, the valuable IP that you have with, with the wrong, uh, you know, the, you have the wrong strategy. So uh, that is really key. And then, for, you know, for larger companies, you have to consider issues such as um, competitors and kind of what the is somebody infringing your IP or is somebody alleging that you're infringing your IP. So you have to be kind of nimble and kind of be able to decipher what what are the most important steps to do to keep your keep your business going. And you know, Alex, we met because we both were are Wharton alumni, and so you know, I I became a Wharton alumni and 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 went to Wharton because. My advice to my clients, uh, my number one duty is to provide the best legal advice, but it always has to be, I always have to keep in mind what the business objective is of my clients. And so I need to, and I try to understand what the business background is so that I can provide the best options for clients to decide. And so I try to combine both of those experiences that I have when I give this advice, whether it be at the startup level or more advanced at the, with the, uh, you know, larger and, you know, national and international companies. So uh, it, it really involves not just the legal aspect, but the business aspect. What, what legal solution is going to help my client reach their business objective? But, there, but there's lots of issues that, uh, you know, with technology running so fast. It runs faster and ahead of the law. And so, for example, one of the things that um, that the law is struggling with right now, the IP law, is with uh, artificial intelligence, right? AI is, uh, you know, it's already a huge part of, of the business side, and uh, it's going to be even larger. We've all heard about chat GPT, right, and uh, how it can write essays that seem to be of, of pretty good quality. And so uh, questions have come around, like, uh, can uh, AI be the inventor of, a, of a, such that they can get a patent? And so <laughs> it's a great question. It's not a person, right? It's, it's some sort of algorithm with a computer and they, uh, AI can generate valuable information that's new. So. Can you get a patent on something that AI created? Uh, that's, that's a question that we're all dealing with. And it was, uh, it was litigated, in fact, last year. There was an individual that created um, some sort of artificial intelligence algorithm. And um, there was an output in that individual tried to get a patent uh, and said, but, but it, it, it the individual said, look, this was created by AI, and the AI is the inventor of, of this new thing. And the patent office said, no, you can't do it because it really has to be an individual. It was litigated in district court in the uh, appeals court. So it went up to the highest level court of appeals that deals with specifically with patent issues. And the, uh, the appeals court said that. Uh, AI can't be the inventor of, you know, of something new where you can get a patent. So uh, 
those are things that are being, you know, we have to deal with every day. The technology is running far ahead of, of the law. Uh, and so that's a great example of a situation where we're trying to figure out how to, how to use the, the current laws with new technology. Another question that, that, that comes, came up recently is whether um, the output of AI can be, uh, can be copyrighted. And, and I know copyright is something that you're very interested in, Alex. And that also, um, so far, the courts have said, no, it's got to be a, a, an artistic uh, or some sort of, 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 of uh, basically an artistic or a, a creation by an individual, not by AI. Uh, but as we know, AI can create, you know, sometimes pretty nice uh, images, right? And, and but, uh, or can be- music. Yeah, music. Yeah, can be pleasing. But- so far, AI per se uh, cannot, uh, you know, the output of AI uh, cannot be copyrighted if it's, just, if it's just purely from AI. So, but those are things that are just being studied and, and looked at. And, um, and so we're dealing with a, the technology running miles ahead of the law in the courts and the lawyers and the legal communities trying to see how to, how to deal with those things. Um, and uh, maybe at some point, Congress is going to create specific laws, right, to say, well, something that is created by AI in one situation or another, it can be patented. Uh, and maybe that's where we'll end up in the future, because if you think about it, everybody's predicting that AI is just going to have such a significant impact on our lives, and it's going to really uh, create really valuable outputs that human minds are not going to be able to do. And so um, is that worth it of some intellectual property protection? So we're going to have to wait and see. It's just an interesting question. So, so my non-legal opinion is, you know, to me, the output of AI is similar to, you know, reading a book or going on Google and researching something. So I think whoever, you know, asks the question, reads the output and then decides to patent it, I think should, you know, own, own the patent. And, and I say this completely non-legally because from another, you know, the thing I heard a while ago, that creativity and ideas always have to come from two existing ideas or more existing ideas, right? So, so there's nothing really new created, so to speak. Everything comes from a combination of information or knowledge that we have from somewhere and combining it. So... And, and I think even, you know, if somebody has a great idea, they don't patent it, but then I go to the patent office and patent it. My understanding is whoever, you know, registers the patent that has the patent um, is my non-legal opinion. So my assumption would be, you know, you can look at the output and say, hey, is this worth patenting? And then maybe, you know, you own the patent, but like, I have no idea. Um, so, no, I think it's, I think everybody's view is, is valid because, we just have to examine and see it's a matter of public policy. What is what makes the most sense uh, to do? I mean, is it you could you could think of a situation where some some big enterprise uh, invests you know billions of dollars in AI is such that it can create things that nobody else can, and so um, could. Could that, you know, would that enterprise say, look, we spent all this money and created this valuable things. We should have some protection 
at least maybe for those 20 years and be able to get a patent on it, even though no one individual in our uh, organization created it. Uh, so you could you could see that argument, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, but but everything that you're saying is also true. That uh, everything that is new is, in some sense, a combination of the old, right? Uh, now that has not stopped. Uh, really, uh, that is not a way to negate a patent under the the current law. Uh, presumably, say there's there's a a patent for. Uh, uh, a chair with four uh, four legs, and if somebody comes up with a chair with six legs and says this is actually much better because it's more stable and blah blah blah, you can do all these things that were unexpected. You can probably get a, a patent on. <laughs> Interesting. So, yeah. what are the types of things that you like working on? And, you know, you said you want to do more impactful or meaningful for work. What would be impactful or meaningful in your opinion? Well, so. My, for me, there's two ways to look at it. So my number one uh, objective is to work with my clients, understand where they want to go, identify the pit holes, the the potholes and the problems that they may have and make them kind of go away. So that that is from from a purely uh, lawyer to client perspective. Those are really the that that's really my objective. Um, from a kind of a, a, a legal kind of scholarly perspective, I enjoy tackling these new issues that are coming up as far as kind of understanding where technology is going and, and how the law is going to fit around it. So that is, you know, just as we were talking, is how does AI uh, fit within the legal construct? That I think that's that's tremendously uh, tremendously exciting, uh, and then from from a personal perspective, it's you know I, I've I've been lucky enough to work uh, with many many interesting and smart folks, and there's been a lot of people that have helped me along the way, and so from a personal perspective, it's it's mentoring, it's mentoring the younger folks that are coming up, the the younger uh the law students that are just starting their career and trying to figure out what their next step is, what do they want to do? And so that that is meaningful to me from a personal perspective, mentoring the younger generation, whether it be just starting college or they may be in law school or the younger lawyers that I work with. Uh, you know, on a day-to-day basis is uh, helping them learn, understand the ropes and um, achieve um, things that, that they want to achieve. Uh, and so that is that is really meaningful to me from a personal perspective. So, you know, it, it depends as to what angle you're looking at. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier that your second was born right after Brabeck had, had shut the doors. Um, so, you know, that had been roughly 18 years ago, and you just talked about mentoring. And I believe uh, you have uh, two daughters, right? Correct. And, yes, yes. And, and so I think they've, they're in university now or are doing pretty well in life. Um, can you share a little bit about the personal side as to what, what they're up to? You know, dad's a big time lawyer. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I, I, I'd love to. Uh, so I, I, have, uh, I have two daughters. Uh, 
the uh, the oldest one is uh, at the University of Texas, you know, at Austin here, and uh, she's in the um, in the uh, College of Natural Science in the Health Science Scholars Honors Program, and she'll be graduating with a degree in biology this uh, at the end of this uh, this semester, and she's been fully interested in uh, in healthcare, and uh, but she's also interested in entrepreneurship. Uh, it's uh, it's a it's a kind of a, a more of a rare combination, but the through the University of Texas, she's been involved with uh, an organization that uh, called the uh, Kendra Scott Women's Entrepreneurial Institute that um, helps promote and advance and mentor uh, female identifying students um in the in the business field to develop leadership and entrepreneurial uh capabilities and she was so involved and interested in this uh that she um became the president of the student body organization for for the uh for the they call it the k as well as that kendra scott uh women's entrepreneurial institute and through that she has uh, met and uh Many many female leaders and uh, has become super interested in uh, in the entrepreneurial side, but she also loves uh, the uh, healthcare side, and so she is looking into furthering her career uh, in that direction. So the her ultimate goal is uh, probably to become a physician, but between now and then, she wants to explore that that intersection of. Uh, Advancing healthcare through technology, um, because uh, as she's put it to me, healthcare delivery—a um, lot of the big innovations are out there. I mean, the the the, mo- the advances are out there. They're very expensive, but there's kind of a medium and smaller scale advances that can be that are not out there to help improve healthcare delivery, and so. She's interested in helping adapt existing technologies to the improvement of healthcare, even if it's just incremental. And um, so that's what that's what she's she's going to be focusing on uh, over the next couple of years before continuing um, her path toward uh, becoming a physician. And so she's looking at that. There's uh, graduate programs that are starting to evolve around the country that look at this, and she's so she's uh, interested in that. And so I'm uh, I'm very proud of her, and I I hope she continues that. There's there's a large need, uh, I think, for that uh, interesting combination: healthcare and entrepreneurship. Sure. Then my uh, my other daughter, uh, which is the one that was born three weeks approximately before uh, Brobeck uh, closed its doors. <laughs> so I'll always remember uh, that that uh, that time. Um, she is in college uh, at, at Rice University in Houston, and uh, she was accepted into a program that's called the uh, Rice uh, Baylor College of Medicine Scholars Program, where uh, right out of the gate, as she goes into college, she's uh, accepted into the uh, the College of Medicine at, uh, at, at Baylor, which is in the Texas Medical Center, and it's just basically a few blocks away from uh, from Rice University. So her pathway is is 
fairly set and she is uh, she loves it. She uh, was able to spend her summer over at the Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, she's doing research for them. So she's also in the healthcare side uh, of things and uh, also doing doing quite well there. So uh, I've been I feel very fortunate and blessed uh, to be uh, to have uh, my two daughters and obviously, uh, not, none of this could have happened without the uh, wonderful support of my wife, uh, Ingrid, who really uh, was uh, provided a lot of the guiding light for uh, for my two daughters. Well, no, thank you for going into the, some of that. And I want to share that because, uh, you know, you seem to have a very full-rounded uh, family and very well-educated uh, family on that side as well. So thank you for touching on some of that stuff as well. And even as you talk about healthcare, it seems like technology is the intersection of some of that as well, which, you know, relates back to IP. But the other day I was talking to somebody about, you know, using 3D printing to print tissues and, and to have like systems and processes that people are looking to patent and things like that. So IP in itself is is very broad. Is there anything that you can share of uh, share about some of like the most unique things you've worked on? I know you touched on AI a little bit, but some of the most unique IP yeah. words you've come across were like, whoa, like I don't even know the world was doing this kind of thing. Well, it, it, you mean it, technology kind of evolves and becomes not as not as new, but uh, about maybe twelve years ago, I, I worked uh, on a uh, orthodontics case, and it, it involved IP that is now is kind of well known and not a big deal, but it was back then uh, the the software that was able to. Uh, create 3D images of your mouth and your teeth and all your structures. And that was what w- would enable uh, the creation of the trays that are now very common to, you know, align teeth and all of that stuff. Back then, it was a, it was a big deal. It was, it, you know, a, a wand would be introduced uh, in your mouth and it was able to take 3D images of the entire uh, oral cavity uh, to almost perfection, and and that's how um, this uh, the the uh, company was able to then create a solution to uh, for orthodontics to align the teeth either through trays or through uh, the wire bending for braces that would make it much more efficient and much more uh, much more perfect. And, um, you know, in, interestingly enough, the uh, some of the software that uh, was being used, at, at least by this one entity, was uh, was software that was originally created for, like, military uh, use. <laughs> and and it, it had, like, super, pre- very, very detailed precision to, like, uh, a micro, I don't remember, millimeter or micrometer, I don't even precision that was much beyond that is needed for, uh, you know, for orthodontics, but that's, that's what, you know, it was, it was a way to adapt existing software to, to a solution that didn't require the precision, but it worked uh, really well. Of course, when you're in the area, uh, you can, you can tell all sorts of things. And I remember working with this client and I, uh, I was looking at examples of uh, patients that had have you know this solution applied, and uh, you know I could see them smiling and say, "Wow, that that's a great outcome. The teeth look wonderful, and 
these extra would say, oh, no, 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 look, there's uh, like, you know, it could be like a micro or a millimeter more to this side or that side. I think I couldn't tell. But anyway, but back then it was the, the software that would create the 3D uh, model of the cavity of the oral cavity. That was something new. And there was a lot of litigation that surrounded that uh, about 10, 15 years ago. Now it's, it's all it's considered kind of old technology. People go into the, to an orthodontic. They ask for a tray or some alignment. And first thing they do is they scan them out and they get this picture, 3D picture of the cavity. And it's not a big deal. But back then, it was, it was quite amazing. But that's, that's how technology moves, right? What new uh, years ago uh, is kind of old now. It, when I started as an engineer before I became a lawyer, I worked at this company it was called uh, Bell Communications Research, and they were working on some of the, back then, the biggest advances in telecommunications. And my first project was uh, with a technology that the purpose of it was to get digital connectivity to the home. It was, back then, it was just voice. And if you're lucky, you could put in a modem and uh, try and communicate with the modem uh, at horrible speeds and, 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 and bad quality. And so we were working on a technology that was called ISDN, which was supposed to get this uh, you know, technology end-to-end, so it would be all digital. And I remember, as, as a young engineer, some of the... Uh, um, you know, older uh, and, and more experienced uh, uh, managers, engineering managers, talking about the promise that someday people would be able to uh, watch movies at home because they would be streamed that, and everybody was in shock that that could be, you know, that that was kind of pie in the sky. Uh, so the the technology just moves at such a fast pace. And, you know, working as, a, as an engineer, you know, the technology I worked on ISDN never made it commercially. And my, what I learned from that is that when technology is being developed to fix a known problem, you can't wait until it's perfect because you're never going to get it out there. And so... Uh, Despite so much money being invested by back then were the phone companies and ISDN to get this perfect uh, digital end-to-end technology in, in years and years of standard setting and so on, he never made it because newer technology came and was deployed ahead of this. And it kind of leapfrogged all of these efforts and all this uh, investment was kind of for nothing because newer technologies came along that were put out there and people started using them. So it, it, it was a, a great learning experience uh, in that whenever there's some new development, new technology, it can't be perfected to be put out on the market. You get, it's got to be out there. It's got to be useful. But if you wait for perfection, it's, it's not going to be successful. Somebody else is going to come in with something slightly better or quicker, and uh, you're going to lose that opportunity. That was a great lesson that I learned. 
Yeah, you have to put something out there and continue to iterate and improve on it. That's why, you know, we have iOS updates on our iPhones all the time, right? And things like that. So totally, totally. I mean, it was it was a great it's a great learning experience. And um and it, it was it, to me it was a little bit sad because I worked on this technology for about six, seven years and it never it never really made it. Never really made it out there. But would you say an engineering background has been really helpful for you when it comes to IP law and understanding, you know, uh, the engineering side of things. It has. It's it, it, it's been really, really, uh, it's been really a great foundation to do IP. Um, you know, many of the many of the things that I work on um, really clients appreciate that you understand the the technology and for good reason because it helps you provide better better advice as to you know how you're going to move forward in, in litigation too. It's also very important uh, in many of the uh, uh, patent litigation cases that I've been involved in uh, the distinction between whether there's liability for infringement or not really goes down to either details in software code details in how a semiconductor is made details into how a, uh, you know, specific tele- telecommunications signal goes from one point to another. And so while uh, for many of those cases, uh, we employ, you know, experts, PhDs that are super knowledgeable, it, we need to understand all those details so that we can devise and create the best, uh, the best strategy to, uh, to defend against, against those situations or to figure out, you know, how the client should proceed. So it, it has been, it has been very helpful. And, um, it's, I, I truly believe that that has led me to provide much better legal advice and to provide better solutions for the clients that I work with. So you have to have a really deep knowledge in a lot of areas because IP expands in so many areas from, you know, health, just pure tech, things like that. And like you said, to go into, you know, understanding how semiconductors and certain aspects of code work like that. That sounds like you're going really deep into areas. And nowadays, I think it's, you know, sometimes so hard to, you know, be an expert in, in like, let's say back in the day, tech 20 years ago was probably, hey, you know, what helped me set up my email. Right now, it's like, oh my God, am I, um, you know, what kind of developer am I in software kind of thing? And then it's like, yeah, and it's like security and cyber and all this other stuff. So, absolutely, absolutely. The the one thing that I that I have to say is, um, you know, despite my technical background, you know, everything that's out there now, it, it's it's newer and it's not what I studied and it's it's different. But what the what the technical background does for me is when I look take deeper dives and, or have the, these experts who are really experts look at it and explain it to me, I'm not afraid to listen and try and figure out, okay, I see what you're saying, you know, it's X, Y, and Z. So it allows me to, to kind of remove that fear and have enough background to understand what's going on when the real experts cannot decipher it for me. Mm-hmm. So it, it is, uh, you know, even if I don't understand it, it provides me with the confidence and the background to make heads and tails of it. And then to be able to apply that information and create the best solution possible uh, that my client needs. So it, it is really a helpful situation. Now, the one area that I don't work 
with uh, that is really totally outside my uh, technical technical expertise is the uh, you know chemical side of things. There's also a big uh, you know there's, there's a lot of issues with a lot of uh, you know chemical components, pharmaceuticals, and so on. Those are kind of beyond my area of expertise. Uh, and folks with chemical degrees and so on can, can help on that side. For for sure, it makes a lot of sense. So I'm going to say, given that, you know, you're at the early stages of, well, ideally at the early stages of when companies, you know, think about a patent or a trade secret, you should be almost at the forefront of what's coming in technology. So, you know, if you had to, you know, have a crystal ball, what do you think is happening in 10, 20 years from now? And where is technology going? Or what do you think is going to be happening as a, as a major shift in, in your opinion, based on what you're seeing right now on the IP side? Yeah, so I I think uh, you know quantum computing is is, is going to be is going to be huge. Uh, tons of investment in in that area, and it's uh, it's a whole new paradigm of of, uh, of attacking uh, you know algorithms of of, of, of doing calculations, and uh, that is that's it's going to be a, a, a life changer. And uh, you know I've I've heard that with quantum computing, it's whenever it, it kind of comes to fruition, which apparently is not going to be far from now, most of the encryption mechanisms that are out there and password protections, they're going to be easily solvable with quantum computing. So that's going to change our lives. And, and that in combination with artificial intelligence, which is, is going to, uh, you know, it, it's going to help us do so many things as a, as a society that, uh, are done by individuals. That it's going to be a huge, a huge amount of change. So that those two things um, are going to be uh, are going to be game changers for society. And of course, as with every new technology, it it can be applied for the good and it can be applied uh, in a bad way. Uh, and so you know that's that's part of the, the scary part is. Uh, when it is used in a bad way for society, how are we going to be able to manage it and handle it? Um, of course, there's many, many good ways to use it. And, and you can see quantum computing in combination with AI coming with tremendous solutions for many of the healthcare issues that we have. You know, the cancers, all of those things that have a troubled society, uh, Alzheimer's, all sorts of things that are going to be uh, solved with the help of, of, of the combination of all of these AI algorithms and the speed of quantum computing. It's, gonna, it's just an incredible combination. Yeah, I've, I've heard about the you know, encryption side of things and how quantum computing could be a threat even to, to banks and, and things like that as it relates to security. So everyone, I'm going to have to get a closer look at quantum computing on that side and probably have to change my password from password. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, we're gonna we're gonna need we're gonna need quantum computing to create something that's so complicated that yeah. that another quantum computing uh, you know mechanism can't find it out. It's gonna be the scary thing is that it's gonna be kind of beyond the human our, level. Yeah. beyond our way beyond our comprehension, and we're gonna have to use all these mechanisms to help us. We're we're gonna to have to trust things that we don't really fully understand, which is which is terrifying, right? I, it's, I think. it's terrifying. Yeah, it's totally it's totally terrifying, and so it, it's it's gonna be a, a a new world, and um, you know it's uh, where uh, you're 
you know, your children, my children are, are growing up into something, something totally different. Um, and we just have to, uh, you know, try and make sure that, that we are for the, the good use of, of all of these technology and, and, and that it stays ahead of the, of the, of the bad uses of it. Uh, but, but it's, it's, it is going to be the speed of change that's going to come around, uh, in the next 10 to 15 years is going to be, is going to be crazy. So one of the, one of the things that's good, uh, at least the way I see it for me, Alex, is that, um, as we get older, we, and, and we may have seen it with our parents or grandparents when they're, they're driving at some point, you tell them, you know, you, Maybe you shouldn't be driving because, you know, it's, it's uh, maybe you don't see as well, your reflexes. So I'm hoping that by the time I get there, we're going to have all these self-driving cars and I'm going to be like, no, <laughs> I'm going to be independent and go anywhere I want with my self-driving car. Yeah, love it. Yeah, there's going to be lots of positives for sure, like you said. So just, you know, hopefully the positives outweigh the negatives. But I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for being on and, and uh, look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you, Alex. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. You too.